Last week, we collected up the very tender topic of the family, and we brought that to the Bible, which is the mind of Jesus, and we said to the Lord, okay, Lord, here's the thing. We all know what our family does look like. What we want to know is what our family should look like. And here's why we want to know it. We want to know it because we understand, and if we don't, then we ought to understand who God is and who we are relative to God. I mean, if you think about it, the Bible comes to us with all these different metaphors that describe our relationship to the Lord. What are they? Master, servant. Father, son. King, subject. That's who God is. That's who I am. That's who you are if you are in a faith relationship with the God of the universe through faith in His Son, and that is a great and wondrous place to be. We are the prized possession of God, guys. We are the ones that He foreordained before the foundation of the earth was laid to set His love upon, who though we were in sin, who though we were filthy, who though we were running as fast as we could away from Him, who though we worshiped and served and glorified and exalted ourselves, who though we chased down our own passions as opposed to chasing Him down with a passion, chased us down and with His great and redeeming love did what? Didn't just make us clean. He makes us beautiful. It's a glorious thing. So he's king, I'm subject. He's father, I'm son. He's master, I'm servant. Let me give you one more. He is the owner, and I'm his possession. Isn't that what Paul says? In light of the great and glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus, he comes to us and says, hey, listen, one other thing you need to know. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God, he says, in your Body, what do you do with your body? Everything. That's the idea. Everything. So we gathered up our family last week, said, all right, Lord, here's the deal. We all know what our family does look like. Might not want to talk about it, might not admit it, might not like it, but we know what it is, what should it be. And we want to know that for one other reason, too. Because as we talked about last week, my family isn't about me and your family isn't about you. Everything in the universe was created for the singular purpose of bringing God glory, which means, bottom line, that my family is not here to meet my needs, to satisfy my desires, to make me feel fulfilled or happy. Though that does happen when in the wisdom of God, my family is constructed in the way that He designs it. But it's about His glory. It's about taking the wisdom of God and through the vehicle of our families, guys, displaying it in the midst of a world that needs to see what wisdom looks like within the context of a family. So, Lord, again, here's the deal. I know what my family does look like. What I need to know is what my family should look like. And what did Jesus do last week? Well, he went in the garage, right? He rummaged around a little bit, came back out, dusting himself off, a little coughing, a little sneezing. He is a man. He's the God-man, so that could happen. And he came back with a bicycle wheel. So I brought one. It is a dirty bicycle wheel, as it turns out. And he said, all right, since you asked, biblically speaking, it should look kind of like this. The circle of the wheel is the circle of your family. Each individual spoke, each individual member of your family, and then he talked to us about the hub. Not the most important part. 
said, I want you to notice where the hub is. It's not out here outside the circle of the wheel. Neither is it inside the circle of the wheel, but kind of, you know, off to a side. It's dead center in the middle. I want you to notice what the hub does. It not only is connected to each individual spoke, but through it, each individual spoke is connected to the others. Take the hub out of the wheel. What do you have? You don't have much, do you? I mean, you've got a bunch of disconnected spokes. You've got a wheel that you don't really want to lean too hard down on, I guess, because it'd be pretty weak. And you have a wheel that cannot fulfill the purpose for which it was created. But with the hub as the center, well, now you're going places. Now something's happening. He said, the circle of the wheel is the circle of your family, the spokes of the individual members, the hub of the wheel, the most important part, which stands or is to at the center and ties everyone together is the Lord your God. And then he said, let me give you a commandment as the people of God, as those whom God has chosen and redeemed, not just forgiven, but is in the process of making beautiful. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. And here's what happens within the context of the wheel of your family, practically speaking, as every one of us does that. What happens is that as we're pursuing God, as God becomes our passion, as we're being fed and fueled by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, as we're being transformed into the image of God, as we ourselves are living in a vital connection to the Lord our God, and as everyone else is, Then we come together around the Lord our God, and we learn not just to love Him, but through Him to love each other as well. It's a God-empowered love. So last week, we got together and we said, all right, the love that holds a family together is not primarily the love that each individual member of the family has for all the other individual members, but rather, it is primarily the love that each individual member of the family has for the Lord their God. He's the connector. He's at the center. He's the one that makes it go. And our job as followers of Him is to love Him, and as parents, which we talked about last week, is to impress these things upon our children. It's to lead them into that same kind of passionate, pursuing, God-glorifying love relationship that we have. So that's what we talked about last week, and today, as we take up the topic of Jesus and husbands, I want to tell you whose responsibility it is within the context of the wheel of your family to primarily lead that effort. So if you are a married man, raise your hand with me if you would, please. Just put it up. Okay, look around. All right, the answer is you and your family, and it's me and mine. And I ask you to raise your hand, not to put you on the spot, but so that you could look around this room and realize that you are not the only broken, sinful guy with this job. But there are a whole lot of brothers here who by the same power of God, in accordance with the same wisdom of God, is called to take that same journey with their family that you're called to take with yours, and who are available to take it with you too.
Listen to what Paul says about the leadership structure of the family in Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22, he says this and he speaks to the wives first. And Oh, I know this is your favorite verse. You love this one. So let's talk about it, but only briefly. He says, wives, submit, there it is, to your own husbands as to the Lord. I just want to pause for a minute and go, look, I could speak for an hour and a half on this, and I think it would be really helpful if I did, like you would feel a lot better about this, but I don't have an hour and a half to spend on this. I'm talking to the husbands and dads today. I do want to point out for you that that's not a suggestion. It's a command, and here's the deal. It's a command that you, as you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, are as an expression of your love for the Lord your God and as an act of worship to Him to submit to and obey. The question is not, you know, do we need to keep these commandments? I mean, you know, it seems kind of culturally irrelevant. That's not the question. The question, I think, for a lot of us is, well, then why did God pick the man? I mean, have you ever thought that? Don't lie. You have, haven't you? Is it because God made men inherently more intelligent than women? Is that it? More capable? More naturally gifted as leaders? Oh, I know what it is. Maybe it is that he gave the man, he just made him more inherently valuable before him, has greater standing before him, greater dignity before him. Is that what it is? It's none of those things. As you read through the Bible, study women and come to realize that the woman is every bit the equal to the man in the Scriptures. And then just look around. You know, God does not discriminate in terms of his ability to just hand out gifts, does he? He sprays them out amongst us all. I think the reason that God did this is because God is a God of order. Everything that he creates, he creates with order. Even from the very beginning of the Bible, when you open up the first passage and you start to read about the creation story, what do you read? You read about an earth that is in chaos. The earth was formless, we're told, and void. What is that formless? What is that? That means it's out of control. It is full of chaos. It is disordered in what has God said about doing. It's creative what he does. He establishes order, and he fills that which is empty. Families need order, and the God who has ordained and created families has created an authority structure within every family that will bring order as opposed to disorder when we accept His wisdom and live by faith in light of it. And for reasons known to Him, He chose the man. So He comes to us and He says, look, wives, submit to your own husbands as an expression of your love for God and as an act of worship unto the Lord your God. And then he says, for according to the counsel of the Lord, according to the wisdom of the Lord, according to the design of the Lord, the husband, what? Because this is a really important word. It's two letters, and it stands huge in the middle of this sentence. He says the husband is the head of the wife. He doesn't say, if the husband wants the job, it's his. The husband has the right of first refusal. That's the deal. Hey, you know what? If it turns out that the husband looks like the one who's most capable to do this, 
All right, then he's the guy. If the husband wins the election, you know, between husband and wife in the home, he runs the most commercials and he had the most persuasive ads. If he's elected, that's cool, but he's reelected in four years, so he better take care of everybody, you know, so it doesn't work that way. It's not democratic. God comes along and he says, the husband is the head of the wife, and then he drives it home. He says, even as Christ, what? Same word, is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. Like, nobody argues with that part. We don't. But we worry about the other part. And in some cases, pretty legitimately. He then defines, in verse 25, the kind of loving leadership that every husband is to bring to his family. And I think it's important for us to hear it because I'll tell you, it's the kind of leadership that no wife ever need fear. He says this in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives, which parenthetically is also not a suggestion. That too is a commandment, and it is a commandment that we as those who are seeking to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might are as an expression of that love and as an act of worship to keep. Love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is an action. You know, as Christ loved the church and saw her from a distance and said, Oh, I love you. Is that what he did? You're like, but you don't know my wife. I know me. I know a lot of you. Let me ask you something. Does Jesus Christ not have an unruly bride? Because I'm here to tell you just from personal experience that he does. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Paul tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get it all together and then said, okay, you know what? I think now I'm going to love you. It's not the kind of love that we're talking about. So husbands love your wives. Here's how, as Christ loved the church and did what? He gave himself up for her. Okay, so then what kind of leadership is it that every man is supposed to be bringing to his marriage and bringing to his family? I think I'd summarize it this way. It would be humble, selfless, sacrificial, loving, action-oriented. He gave himself. He came. He sought. He saved leadership, which sounds great. Until you realize that, you know, like in about 20 minutes, you've got to go home and you're going, ah, what do I do? I mean, that describes the flavor of it. That describes the nature of it. That describes the character of it. It describes the depth of, the depth of it. He gave his life, did he not? Christ died for his church. So it knows no bounds. But what does it actually look like? Well, that's where I think Peter is helpful, and it's why I asked you guys to do your personal worship out of 1 Peter this past week, but I only want to look at one verse, and that's 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Having just spoken to the wives about being subject to their husbands, he turns to the husbands, and this is what he says. He says, likewise, husbands, as humble, selfless, sacrificial, loving, action-oriented, it takes action, leaders of your wives and of your homes, do what? He says, live with your wives 
in an understanding way. So this is what that means. Like in 20 minutes when you go home, you need by the power of God, in humility, selflessly, sacrificially, to take your eyes off of yourself and to place them on your wife, and not upon the sin of your wife, and not upon the resentments that you have for your wife, maybe rightly, or at least understandably, but upon her, and make it your mission to progressively come to understand what life, and this is the next word and it's important, feels like to her. What does it feel like to be her? Live with your wives in an understanding way. I'm calling you, or Peter's calling you, to understand her. So what is it like to get everyone up, get everyone dressed, get everyone fed, get all the right stuff and all the right backpacks, get everybody out the door five days a week and a sixth on Sunday? What is that like exactly? How does that feel? What does it feel like to be the air traffic controller for everyone's schedule? What does it feel like? I have a list. To be a tutor, a counselor, a nurse, a nutritionist, a teacher, a disciplinarian, an accountant, a fashion consultant, a house cleaner, a waitress, a cook, a lawyer, a lover, and a friend. What does it feel like to be the person that everyone comes to in the middle of the night whenever there's an emergency or even just because they're awake? What does that feel like? What does it feel like to live with the daily pressure of how everything is going, of how everyone is doing, of how everyone is looking, of how everything is looking, of how everyone is feeling, of how each one of these kids in your home that you're the head of are developing and, and turning out because I think our wives feel that more acutely than we do. Last question, and this is penetrating. What does it feel like to be married to you? be honest with you, I didn't want to ask that one. But is that not part of living with your wife in an understanding way of trying to understand, hey, you know what, I'm going to take my eyes off of me. I'm going to put my eyes on you for a minute. And not what drives me crazy about you, you. Loved or unloved? Secure, insecure, appreciated, taken for granted, valued, devalued. I know there's a lot to the whole conversation. But live with your wives in an understanding way. So that's what Peter says. He says, likewise, husbands, as humble, selfless, sacrificial, loving, action-oriented, leaders of your wives and homes, go home in 20 minutes and begin by the power of the Spirit of God in that kind of humility and selflessness and so forth to make the sacrifice of trying to come to understand what life feels like to your wife. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And then he says, and express that understanding to her. Find ways to show her that you understand. And here's how, he says, by showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And that's sort of another aha moment because, again, you know, the ladies are like, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Weaker, what does that mean exactly? Well, it doesn't mean weaker in any of the ways that actually matter. It doesn't mean weaker in talent or weaker in ability or weaker in intellect or weaker in any of those kinds of things. It means literally, physically weaker. And back in the first century, and maybe even today to some degree, socially not given the same kind of protections as men. Women have forever been the more vulnerable sex. He's saying recognize that. Be sensitive to that. 
figure out what life feels like to her, and then show her honor. Express that to her by showing her honor as the weaker vessel, since they, he says, these women that we're married to are heirs with you of the grace of life. They have equal standing, equal dignity, equal value before the Lord your God. And then he adds a sanction. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what's up with that? See, here's the reality. If you're married to a Christian woman, you are married to the king's daughter. God's not just your father. He's your father-in-law. And I think if you have a daughter, that strikes you even more profoundly, doesn't it? So now you're thinking, all right, but now I'm down to 15 minutes and I'm still not exactly sure what to do. I mean, I got the whole I need to try to figure out what life feels like to her thing. I need to take my eyes off of me and put my eyes on her and not on her sin and not on the things that drive me nuts and not on all the things that I could raise up as reasons to ignore her or not have anything to do with her. But instead, humbly, as an act of love unto God and as an act of worship, try to figure out, hopefully with a lot of help from her, hint, hint, in a progressive unfolding, little bit at a time. You can't eat the whole sandwich in one bite. Okay, what is life like for her? And I know that I'm supposed to express that by showing her honor. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, again, I'm going to give you some ideas, sort of like I did last week, and I'm coming to you with a lot of humility on this stuff, guys. You know, I've said to people when it comes to marriage and parenting and and so forth, I mean, God has blessed me with a wonderful marriage, but not a perfect one. I'm not a perfect husband. My wife is not a perfect wife. I shared with you last week that we don't have perfect kids. I hope that wasn't a big shock to you. And I've appreciated that you've just let them be kids. If the proof is in the pudding for us from a parenting perspective, the pudding's still in the pan, man. But I feel like the Lord has shown me some wisdom through other people and through His Word, that I try to employ and that I give to you. So number one, if you haven't done this already, you show honor to your wife when you assume your God-given responsibility for her and for your family. That's what leadership is to some degree, is it not? It's taking responsibility for those whom you are called to lead. So there is a waking up moment that needs to occur for us, all of us probably to some degree, but for some of us, like this is the big aha moment where you wake up and you realize, good grief, this person, these people, this wheel, this family, before Almighty God, who I'm called to love with all my heart and to obey and serve is my responsibility. But when I raised my hand, there were a lot of other guys too. Guys that you probably ought to seek out. My responsibility, and I will tell you plainly that the first and most difficult person that you're going to have to take responsibility for within the context of the wheel of your family, guess who that would be? Me and you. The first and most difficult person to take responsibility for is ourselves. You know, I mean, we look at this and realize, oh my goodness, the Lord is going to need to do a big work in me. Yes, that's right. He is. And he can do that. It's the glory of the gospel. He's the God who raises the dead. My goodness, he can change your heart. 
He can work in and through you. But first, you need to come to him in humility and in repentance and have some real, honest moments with him. And maybe some real, honest moments with your wife. And maybe even some real, honest moments, I don't know, with your kids. And certainly, I think also, you need to seek out a few good men with whom you can live honestly. Who are going to tell you what you need to hear. That's why I wanted everyone raising their hands. Find someone in this congregation. It's the beauty of community that you respect and admire and buddy up to them and ask them to help you on this journey. So you show honor to your wife when you assume your God-given responsibility for her and for your family. And I want to give you three areas to do this. And if you were on our Rio Men Retreat, little review. You assume responsibility for them, first of all, physically. That is to say, you are to provide for your family. You're to be a giver, not a taker. You're to be a provider. You're to make them feel secure in that regard and in every other regard too, but we'll get to that. In addition to that, you're to be a protector. You need to send the clear message to your wife and to your kids that if the world is going to get to them, it's going to literally have to run you over to get there. Assume responsibility for them physically. Assume responsibility for them emotionally, which means that you need to be more than just physically present in your home. And I'll be honest with you, this is hard for me. It's a difficult thing. I mean, just like so many of you guys, you know, we go out, we like pour out our every energy, all of our intellect gone, you know? I mean, what little you have to begin with, right? It doesn't take long. Our emotional resources, done. You're coming in and like less than empty, You used up all of your word quota by 10 o'clock in the morning. If you're a man, there's not a lot of words that we like to say already, and then God has given you a girl. It's tough. Is it not tough? And some of us, depending upon the homes that we were raised in, are sort of, you know, almost genetically disconnected from our emotions. I understand that. I'll be honest with you. There are times I don't even know how I feel. How am I supposed to know how you feel? It's true, but you've got to be more than just physically present. You need to take that most powerful of things in your life, your schedule, and control it. If you have girls, take them out on dates. You don't have to do it every week. You don't have to do it every month. Take them out on dates. Sit down at dinner with them and just say, how's everything in your world? And then, by the power of God, don't give them a sermon or a lecture. Just listen, mostly. That's it. That's the hard part. Do that. My oldest daughter's graduating from high school this year, and I realized it. I was like, oh, my goodness. So first Tuesday of every month, you know where I find that? It's in my calendar. It's amazing, the power of a calendar. First Tuesday of every month, we go to dinner together. We sit down. Went to the whole enchilada on Tuesday. I mean, it was like 18 bucks. I sat down with her. She sat down with me. I said, all right, how's everything in your world? And just listen to her pour out her heart. See, I want to know how she's feeling, and not only how she's feeling, but how everything that's happening in her life is making her feel. I want to know what's going on. If you have sons, schedule in some man time. Maybe that's fishing. Maybe that's just going outside, throwing the ball in the street. Here's the deal. Here's what I know. If you take them to dinner and you say, how's everything in your world? Fine. (laughs) Check. 
I mean, you're done. The whole conversation is over at that point, unless you're talking about video games, okay? That's it. But if you get them out on the street, you're throwing a ball, or you go fishing, or whatever, you're doing something active with your kids, it's amazing some of the conversations that you can get in. Date your wife. Date her. Like, take her out on a date. And put it in your calendar so that it happens a lot. Like, even every week. Friday nights is Beth's night. Just is. Now, the reality is sometimes, you know, our daughter's cheering at a football game, and so we're together, but we're at a football game, so it might not be the nicest date in the world, but it's cool. I mean, we enjoy doing that, but here's the thing. Friday night's for her. I'm with her. She's with me. And by agreement, we can add people to the equation. By agreement. But once it's in that calendar, man, that's a powerful thing. Lastly, if you need help, counseling, those kinds of things, you're the guy you make the call. You make the appointment. Humbly, selflessly, sacrificially, lovingly do it. You're the leader. So you assume responsibility for them physically, emotionally, lastly, spiritually. When God made you the head of your home, He made you the spiritual leader of your home as well. And look, that doesn't mean you have to do everything, but it does mean that you can't do nothing. It means that. So be the guy who prays at the dinner table. We talked about that last week, and I think I said something like, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, get over it. And uh, I did, right? And then I said to Beth later, I'm like, oh, I think I just told everybody to just get over it. Was that okay? And she was like, you know, actually, I think it was all right. So I feel okay about it, but, but really do. And teach your kids to do it. Since none of my kids are in here now, I'll tell you, like my little boy's 10 years old. And uh, we pray at the dinner table, you know, and, and I just, I've been delegating it out because I want them to do it. I want to teach them how to do it. And so with him, for example, I went to him like two days in advance and I said, listen, here's the deal. In two days, I'm going to ask you to pray at the dinner table. It's going to be for the first time. You cool with that? I just didn't want to surprise you with it. I wanted you to kind of be ready for it. If you want to talk about what you want to say, that's fine. But I just know this, that the Lord delights in hearing your voice and so do I. So I'm really not worried about what comes out of your mouth and I don't want you to be. Day before, remember, day of, hey, guess what? Your turn. And he did. Someday he gets to lead a family, I hope. Train your children on how to do these things. Be the guy who reads his Bible. Be the guy who asks his family members, how can I pray for you? Be the guy who takes his car and turns it into Automobile Theological University. Be that guy. You can do that. See, so many of us, I mean, if we can just talk honestly as men, are spiritually really intimidated by our wives. And the reason is because they're in, you know, 15 Bible studies and 48 prayer groups. That's intimidating. I'm sorry. It really is. And they've been doing it for like 93 years, you know, and we're like, oh, good grief. How am I ever going to... Listen, if they're in 15 Bible studies and 48 prayer groups... There are 15 Bible studies and 48 prayer groups praying for you to spiritually lead your family right now. Nobody's going to be more excited about it than her. 
And you don't have to be a scholar. And I'll tell you, make investments in your understanding of the Word of God. Engage in personal worship. Listen to great lectures online. Go to our Christ Throughout the Bible class at 1030 each Sunday. You know, take advantage of these resources. Talk to us. We can help you with that. But grow. You're the guy. And be the guy who sets the example when it comes to gathering for worship. Don't be the guy that everybody has to kind of manipulate and maneuver around, and hopefully we can get him there. Be the guy who leads everybody there and leads into community and leads into service in the name of Christ. So, bottom line, you show honor to your wife when you assume your God-given responsibility for her and for your family, and it starts with, well, me and with you. Secondly, you show honor to your wife by the way that you talk to her and by the way that you talk about her. One of the amazing things about marriage, and it's amazingly wonderful and healing and it's amazingly destructive as well, is that the crucible of marriage takes the words of your spouse and of you and makes them unbelievably powerful. The whole world can come along and tell you you're ugly, but if your spouse thinks you're beautiful, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. The whole world can come along and tell you you're stupid, okay? But if your spouse says you're brilliant, all right. The whole world can come along and say that you're worthless. But if your spouse thinks you're a priceless treasure, how do you feel and why? Is it because you love your spouse and therefore you value their opinion more than anybody else? No. No, it's because your spouse, in contrast to the whole world, actually knows who you are. They've seen it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when the world comes along and says you're ugly, but your spouse who's seen more of you than the world says you're beautiful, it's a little different ring, doesn't it? When the world says you're stupid, but your spouse who's experienced the gifts of your wisdom says you're brilliant, you get the idea? Worthless, priceless, but don't miss this. The opposite is true too. The whole world can tell you you're beautiful, but if your spouse who has really seen you despises your beauty, how do you feel? Stupid? Brilliant. Priceless? Worthless. Goes both ways. Powerful, powerful things are words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Good grief, throw rocks at me. I'd much prefer that. So you honor your wife by the way you talk to her and by the way that you talk about her. And that brings me to my last point, maybe the most important one. You show honor to your wife by freely extending forgiveness to her, and when necessary, and it's often necessary, really, by asking for it. You know, it's fascinating as you go to Ephesians and you read through the book, and you realize that it's Ephesians 5 when Paul comes to us and says, wives, submit to your husbands and husbands, humble, selfless, sacrificial, loving, action-oriented leadership of your wives and so forth, and the wife must respect her husband. And then he goes into chapter 6, and the children must obey their parents and all of that stuff. He gives us this whole complex, this authority structure for the family and how it's supposed to work in the wisdom of God in a way that brings order out of chaos. 
but brings chaos when we ignore it. However, he precedes the whole conversation with chapter 4, at the end of which he talks about forgiveness. He talks about grace. It's like the oil in the engine, guys. Without it, it doesn't go very far with it. It's enabled to run. I want to read to you the last two verses of Ephesians 4. And I want you to compare it to your heart. Listen to what he says. Let all bitterness, is that in there? And wrath and anger, it's quite the laundry list. Clamor and slander be what? Be fertilized, be cultivated. Let it grow up like a big thorny vine and enter into every area of your life and of your marriage and of your family. That's what you ought to do. That's not actually what he says. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be uprooted and thrown out. That doesn't happen in a moment. You know, you don't flick a switch and go, oh, well, pull that weed out. You know, like you're walking through your yard. and There's a process involved in that. But that's what you need to be cultivating. Let it be put away from you along with all malice and do what instead? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Because here he is as God in Christ forgave you. Now, wait a minute. Where's God? A little rehearsal. He's in the middle. Where is He? The wheel represents the wheel of your family. The spokes, each person. The hub, the most important part. The hub is the Lord your God, whom you are to love with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. And you are to parent in such a way as to call your, parent, your kids to do likewise. And husbands and fathers, primarily the leadership of this effort, well, it's on me and it's on you. But it's not on us by ourselves. God gives us His Spirit. God gives us His Word and wisdom. He gives us the fellowship of our Lord as we love Him. He changes our hearts and enables us to do and say and think and feel things over time. We'd be quite surprised to do or say or think or feel now. And He gives us one another. So be a humble, selfless, sacrificial, loving, and what else? Action-oriented. you got to do something, leader, in your home, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, this is a truly humbling topic. Um, Lord, we ask forgiveness of our sin. Father, we bring our weaknesses to you, our failures to you. Um, We ask you, Lord, to wash them away and to begin to heal us, begin to guide us, 
begin to empower us. Lord, that you might do a work of humility in us, that we might be selfless. Teach us, God, to love you. Help us to awaken to the fact, first of all, that you're to be the center of the wheel of our lives and of our families and of everything else, that it all revolves around you or it spins off into nothingness. Lord, let us pursue you. Let us seek you while while you may be found, as your word says, and begin to transform us. Begin to teach us, to mold us and to shape us, that we might effectively lead our, our wives and our families in such a way as to bring you glory and in such a way too as to, as to benefit from the order as opposed to the chaos. The order that comes from following you. I pray your blessing on this group of men, Lord, and on me too. We need you. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.